Have you ever felt hopeless before? Has there ever been a point in your life, a time in your life, in which you just battled with despair? Things got so bad, so bad with you, so bad with your family, so bad with your health, so bad with your marriage, so bad with your kids, that it was like your life was so filled with darkness that you saw no way out and you became hopeless. Many of you already know, but this past week has been a very, very difficult week in the life of my family. It has been a week in which I have battled with hopelessness at times. My sister had gotten very ill for some time, some, some just different symptoms and things going on, and finally on Tuesday night we decided we've got to take her to the ER we get to UAB and we're not really sure what to expect and you're hanging out and you're in the ER and you know how it is, you're kind of just ready for them to bring you your antibiotics so you can go home and everything is going to be fine. And then they come in and they say brain tumor. And then it's like after that, it's like machine gun fire. It's like you've got thyroid, you've got, you've got heart stuff, you've got all of these things going on and the whole family just plummets into this pit of hopelessness and you don't really know what to think. You just know, I can't fix this. I can't make this better. I don't know what to do. Parents wrecked, family wrecked. And you've got this bitter taste in your mouth. You really don't know what to think, what you should think, how to think, what to do. And then somebody comes in, another doctor comes in and they say, I, we, we think we can help her. We, we think that we can make her well. We think that it's going to be a while and man, it's going to be hard work, but we, we think we can fix this. We think we can make this better. And it's like all of the bitterness in your mouth begins to savor those sweet words that this man is saying to you. You've been in the midst of all of this darkness and it's like this, this beam of light penetrates and cuts all the way through and you can feel your spirit elevated. You see, you really can't appreciate hope until you've known hopelessness. You can't savor the sweetness of hope until you've tasted the bitterness of hopelessness. You can't delight in the glory and the joy of light until you have lived in the midst of the darkness. And so this Sunday, as we kick off Advent, as we celebrate the hope that comes in Christ, I want us to think and to understand and to love our hope by first and foremost diving and looking and staring right at our hopelessness. And by looking at our hopelessness, may we learn to savor the sweetness of hope. The beam of light that is Christ Jesus that has come so that all of us might not walk with our heads hung low, might not walk in defeat, but even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of the bitterness of disappointment, we can walk in triumphant, glorious freedom. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Genesis chapter 6? This Advent series is going to be a bit 
unique. We're going to take a unique look at Noah. At Noah. We're not really going to so much examine the, the life of Noah. We're, not going to, we're going to be back in Genesis next week, but then we're going to leave Genesis and look at the New Testament uh, picture of Noah. So we're not going to look so much at the life of Noah as we are at the theology of Noah. What is the Bible trying to teach us in the big picture, in the redemption picture through this man, Noah? So today we're going to start being Genesis chapter 6. That's an easy one for you to find. It's the very first book. So table of contents, one more book over it, you're there. And we're going to begin in verse 5. Would you stand with me as we read God's word together? This is that time of year where I'm always afraid I'm going to set myself on fire because I, I'm a bit animated up here and so I'm glad that we've moved this a little bit away from uh, stage center. I feel uh, this is a less hazardous to us all, all right? All right, so Genesis chapter 6, we're going to begin in verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant and infallible word this morning. You may be seated. Following Genesis chapter 3, there are a number of scars that our creation bears, that we as the image bearer of God bear now as a result of the curse of God that has come because of sin. Hospitals exist and insurance exists. Life insurance policies are there. Tragedy seems to be lurking around every corner. We need counselors. We need medicine. We need all of those things. And all of them are the result of the scars of sin on the creation, of the fallenness that it has endured. But you know, out of all of the scars of creation that have come about as a result of sinfulness in the earth, there is none so profound as the fallenness of the mind of humanity. The brokenness of our minds set is what I believe to be the greatest mark of the curse of, the, of sin that bears upon the creation of God. For it is the mind of the man that sets him apart from all of the other creation. It is the mind of the man that allows him to most bestow God's image to those around him. It is the mind of the man that allows him to contemplate God and to know grace and to walk in relationship with God. It is the mind that Romans 1 says, though we see the things of God all around us, we suppress the truth. It is the mind that decides rebellion against God. It is the mind that chooses to go its own way. It is the mind that decides that my way is far greater than God's way. So it is, the, it is through the mind that man is most able to bring glory to God and it is through the mind in which I believe God is so dishonored among the generations. And so it's interesting the way that Moses writes this in Genesis chapter 6. He says in verse 5 in the second part, he says, and that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. The, Net Bible translates it as saying that they only thought 
to do evil all the time. They only thought to do evil all the time. That the only thought of their mind was always evil all the time. And so what he is teaching us is about the pervasiveness of sin. That these were not just a bunch of good people who kind of occasionally made mistakes. These were not just good people who generally brought God glory and generally honored God, but then occasionally kind of had a blow up and kind of had a, had, a, had a come apart, but then came back really, really quick. These weren't just like people that were generally good and had a good heart and wanted to do good things. No, these were bad people who desired to do bad things and did bad things because they wanted to do bad things. That these are people that are fundamentally wicked. These are people that are, are wicked in their very nature. Their very nature is sinful. So sin does not taint them. They simply sin because they are already tainted, because they are already polluted. That the world has been fallen and all that is in it, including the birds and the animals as we see in Genesis 6, because man and his sin has polluted the earth. And so he's speaking here to the pervasiveness of sin. Sin is not just out there. It's not just an action that they've done. It is the desire, the intention of their heart. For what could be more wicked than to do something bad, to do something evil, to do something harmful because you actually wanted to do it? Because it is the inclination of your will, the inclination of your mind, the desire of your flesh. Now, I don't know about you, but this is like one of those go-to VBS passages, right? Like, like every child learns the story of Noah. Uh, and, and so this is one of those stories that we've heard probably more than any other story, right? And I, I can remember us being in, in children's church growing up and like coloring the ark and, you know, you always give Noah like a, a fluorescent green ark, right? And you get all the animals coming in two by two and, and you're coloring and the teacher's talking and I can remember them showing us videos and everybody's like, like reviling Noah and like throwing rocks at him and telling him how stupid he is and they're, they're showing, they're trying to live this out, right? They're trying to demonstrate this. And I remember watching those videos and thinking, man, I'm so glad I don't live in the days of Noah. I'm so glad that when Noah was here and all these people were so evil and so wicked and did so many bad things, I am so glad that I didn't live in the day of Noah that I can kind of live on the other side when people are a little bit nicer and, and more politically correct. But you know what the Bible teaches us? is this isn't a Genesis 6 problem. This is a right now problem. That the days of Noah are in fact our days, brothers and sisters. The only difference between Noah's day and our day is that we have the promise of God that he will not destroy us by the flood once more. But we are emphatically, pervasively wicked. Look around. Look around. Look at the world around us. Does it seem to you as though things are better? Look at the way the world thinks. Look at the way the culture thinks. Look at the way the, 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 the culture is going. Do you believe that things are evolving or devolving? Seems clear to me that they're devolving. As a matter of fact, perhaps the greatest testament to the wickedness of man is your own mind. 
Because that's what's at stake here, right? The star, the scar of sin, the scar of fallenness on the mind of men. You know, I wonder if next week I said, okay, what we're going to do is I'm not going to preach. We're not even going to have music. We're going to have a live streaming session. And so what I need is I need like five volunteers and we're going to bring you up and we're going to do a live stream on the projector of all of the thoughts that you've had this week. I'm going to guess, like out on a limb here, going to be goose egg on that volunteer list, right? Like people will be flocking to the nursery to work and change diapers. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, poop diapers, I'm in, all right? Now, some of y'all would want to come because you're a little nosy and you'd kind of like to know what people think about you until you saw it. But if we decided we were going to live stream all of the thoughts, you wouldn't show up because you know the wickedness of your thoughts. You, you know that when you do something good and you do something right, it's an upset, Right? Like when you do something good and you do something right and you want to do something good and you want to do something right and that's coming from general desire, not, not begrudgingly, you know that that's an upset for you. Like that's proof that God's doing something in me because I typically only want to do selfish things. I typically only want to do wicked things. My heart, my mind is inclined toward wickedness. My mind, my, my heart is inclined toward self-preservation and self-centeredness. So if I do something that bring God, brings God glory, I know that's not Cody. I know that's not me because that's not who I am. I am fundamentally a sinner. I am naturally a sinner. I can only be supernaturally right. So what we see is in Genesis 6, the unveiling of total depravity, right? We see the unveiling of the depths of the depravity of the mind, the depths of the depravity of the soul, that we are not a bunch of good people that occasionally messed up, that we are in our minds. As often as we see people, we judge them. As often as we do something right, we do it begrudgingly. As often as we buy something, we do it for ourselves, right? And so we can see that we are not good people. That what Romans 3 says is the truth. That there is none that is good, no, not one. See, the, the, the belief today seems to be that Jesus came, that Jesus' advent is, the, is so that he could come and save a bunch of good people from difficult lives. That, that Jesus came so that, that good people, people that are, have a good heart and have, have lived a moral life might be delivered and might be saved from having bad marriages and difficult children and, and financial pressure. That if, 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 if we will submit to him, then he will help us so that we don't go through brain tumors and struggles like that. But brothers and sisters, that's not the Bible. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that our minds are always inclined to evil. 
that our minds are always inclined to wickedness, that Jesus did not come so that good people could be saved from difficult lives. No, Jesus came so that wretched sinners might be delivered from judgment. Jesus came so that wretched sinners might be washed clean. Jesus came so that wretched sinners might enter into a relationship with a holy God and not be incinerated on the spot. Jesus came so that wretched sinners, sinful in their very desires, in their very inclinations, might actually have themselves transformed with a new heart and begin to serve the Lord in joy and in freedom. Jesus came so that your desires and my desires, your inclinations and my inclinations might be fundamentally changed so that we are actual image bearers of Almighty God, bearing his image in all of its glory. Jesus did not come so that you could not have a difficult life. Jesus came so that you could be washed clean of the wickedness that is your life. Now, when we go into the next verse there, when we look at verse six, it's really a stunning verse. It's a stunning verse. There's only one other like it, possibly two, but really I think just one other like it in all the Bible in 1 Samuel 15. Let's read it together. It says, and the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. Your translation may even say that the Lord repented, that God repented that he had made man. That in other words, the Lord saw the pervasiveness of evil. The Lord saw the pervasiveness of weak wickedness. He saw that men were only inclined to do evil all of the time. And as he saw it, it grieved him. It grieved him, and it says that he's actually saying, I regret that I've made man at all. I regret that man populate the earth. I regret that I told them to be fruitful and multiply, for wherever there is a man, there is evil. Now, if you're like me, when you read that God has regret, when you read that God perhaps repents, like, what are we supposed to do with that, right? Like, what are we supposed to do with the repentance of God? See, it's important that we understand that God does not repent like a man repents. In fact, there are an, there's another passage in Psalms that says, God does not repent, and that is in the context of a man. How, when does a man repent? When does a woman repent? A person repents when they realize that they have either done something wrong or they have not seen what is coming, Right? A man repents, a woman repents when they've either done something wrong, done something unwise, or when something has come that has consequences that they didn't see coming. And so they will regret it. They will repent of it. They will turn away from it. They will do something different because they have seen that what they understood was not understood correctly. Or even though they did understand, they did not do correctly. But God doesn't repent like that. God doesn't repent because he, re because he didn't see what was coming. God is omniscient. God is omnipresent. God is already in, to tom in tomorrow. God knew what was going to happen in Genesis 6 billions of years before Genesis 6 was ever a thing. God knew what was going to happen in Genesis 6 an eternity before there was even a world. He already knew that. 
God is holy. God is perfect. God is righteous. God does not make mistakes. So God is not repenting here because he didn't see it coming. God is not repenting here because he didn't see that man was going to sin. He knew that man would sin. God is not repenting here because he, he believes that he himself has done something wrong. God has, is incapable of acting wrongly. God is incapable of acting foolishly. So what does it mean then? What does it mean then? What we should understand is that God here is lamenting. He's lamenting. That what we are getting a glimpse into is something that we have trouble with sometimes. Is that God has emotions. They're perfect emotions. They're righteous emotions. He doesn't fly off the handle like you and I do in emotions. But our God is not some static creature that doesn't feel anything. No, us being made in his image, that's why we're emotional. That's why we have feelings in a way that a deer and a lion do not. And so as we peek into the emotions of God, what we're left with, I think, is a jaw-dropping picture. That God laments the painful necessity of his providence. God laments the painful necessities of his prov providence. So I told you earlier that 1 Samuel 15, let me explain what I'm talking about here. 1 Samuel 15, you have Saul has been anointed king, right? The people of God have wanted a king. And so God has said, you don't really want a king? And they said, no, we really want a king. We want to be like all the other nations. And so God raises up a king, a man by the name of Saul, a man who looks like a mighty warrior, a man who fits the image of a king. He's the one, like if you're looking for a king, that's your boy. And so they anoint him king and he comes in to 1 Samuel 15 and he has been disobedient. He has been cowardly. He has been, he has forsaken the Lord. And so God is removing his hand from him to go and anoint David. And he says, I regret that I ever made Saul king. I repent that I ever made Saul king. Y'all stay with me. This, we're going somewhere with this. What is he talking about? You see, it was necessary for Saul to be the king. It was necessary within the providence and plan of God for Saul to be the king. For how is it that the people of Israel would have ever chosen a shepherd boy like David? How is it that they could love the courage of the shepherd boy facing down the giant had they not seen first the cowardice of their king? How is it that they could love the faithfulness and the obedience of David had they not first seen the disobedience and the unfaithfulness of Saul? That looking deeply into the, into the hopelessness, we find the hope. Looking deep into the wickedness of Saul, they're able to embrace and love and treasure David, the one through whom God will establish his throne forever. So the providence is painful. And God regrets it. He regrets it because it brings pain into Saul's life. He regrets it because it brings pain into the life of the people of God. He repents and regrets it. He laments. He is heartbroken over the agony that it brings to his people. But it serves a good that is so great that the, all the pain of providence is made necessary. Come into Genesis chapter 6. It's even more specific than that. That God here is lamenting the costliness of man's sin. 
He is lamenting that within, the, within his providence and in his plan that he is actually going to use the sinfulness of man to his glory and for man's good. But in the moment, man's sin is painful. Man's sin is costly. It's soon to be that an entire generation of people, aside from Noah and his family, will be wiped from the earth. It's soon to be that all of death and destruction, the wrath of God, will literally rain down upon the earth and flood them so that all of them are wiped away. In the future, there's going to be suffering. There's going to be child abuse. There's going to be abusive husbands. There's going to be wicked kings. There's going to be pestilence. There's going to be poverty. There's going to be persecution against the church. God sees the sinfulness of man. He sees the wickedness of man, and it grieves him to his soul. Ultimately, the wickedness and the costliness of man's sin, the pain of God's providence, will be made full, fully manifested when it goes upon the cross, when his own son, the second member of the Godhead, is nailed there so that man's sin might be paid, so that man, who was once hopeless, might now walk and live and, in, and exist in hope. So yeah, God looks at the pervasiveness of sin that day, and he's heartbroken by it. God looks at the pervasiveness of sin that day and he is grieved to the very foundation of who he is as God. You know what I think that teaches us? I think that teaches us that God is not cold-hearted to your struggles. God is not cold-hearted to the pain of his providence. You know, here at Iron City, we have a high view of the sovereignty of God, right? And so you've heard me on more than one occasion come in and say, you've got struggles, you've got, you got dying children, you've got a, a dying wife, you've got, you got bankruptcy, you've got struggles in your life. Don't fear, take hope, take joy in the fact that you can know that not one second of it is unplanned by God and that it is going somewhere and that it has a purpose and an aim and a meaning. But you know, I think it's possible for us to hear those words and as good and true and rich as they are, as we talk about the, the good ends to which the painful providence of God is flowing, for us to say, how could God let something like that happen? It's easy for God up there. It's easy for God up there when I'm down here and I'm the one struggling. It's easy to say that it's all God's plan, but it's me that can't sleep. It's easy for, for to say that, that this is all going to work out in the hands of God, but it's my children that are rebelling. It's my Thanksgiving that's messed up. It's my pillow that's soaked with tears. I was studying this on Thursday. I'd had 40 hours without sleep. Some of you know because I called you weeping over what was happening in my family. And I know the text that I'm going to study, and I don't really expect to get much of a word from God to my, for my situation from this text. And then it hit me. And then it hit me. It hit me. Like, as hard as this is, as pervasively wicked as the earth is, as painful as the providence of God is, though I am weeping, God is weeping too. God is weeping with me. God is 
saddened too. God is not indifferent to our struggles, brothers and sisters. God is not indifferent to your pain. God is not indifferent to your tears. God is not indifferent to your sorrow. He is not indifferent to your affliction. He is not indifferent to your anger. No, God looks down on you and he regrets it. He hates it. He, he is mourning with you. I don't know about you, but that comforts me. That is not just about that it's part of a plan. Praise God that God is so sovereign and so mighty and so power, powerful that none of this stuff happens by accident. Praise God's name. Oh, but praise God's name that he is not some cold deity, some cold clockmaker in the sky that whelmed this thing up and just lets it go and watches it from afar. No, he is the sympathetic high priest. He is the one that knows my suffering and knows my struggle. I, my God is a God that will weep with his people. See, Jesus came so that the pain of providence might be made beautiful. Jesus came so that your pain might be made beautiful. Upon the cross, he suffered and he agonized. The baby that was born to the virgin would ultimately go and he would die having lived a righteous life, a perfect life, a holy life and being nailed to the cross in agony, having been scourged and beaten. He would in agony just pull up and not suffocate but he stood there and he hung there and all of us look back and it, that pain is beautiful. And brothers and sisters, it didn't start and it didn't stop at the cross. It was proven at the cross. So that all the pain in your life and all the pain in my life and all the pain in the life of my mama and my daddy and all the pain in the life of my little sister and all the pain in the life of some of you that I've prayed with and pleaded with God for all the pain in some of you that are dealing with, with sick children and sick parents and sick husbands all of you that don't really know how all of this stuff's going to figure out. Some of you who are dealing with betrayal. Some of you are dealing with, with the loneliness and depression. Like, I don't know how all that's going to work out. But I can tell you this. Jesus came to make it beautiful. Jesus came to make it beautiful. All of it is going to work together for his glory and for your good. But don't you think for one second that he's sitting on some easy, some lazy boy into heaven just watching it casually. No, he is agonizing with you. He is regretting it with you. He is lamenting it with you. But I can promise you, brothers and sisters, it will be beautiful. Stand firm. Stand firm. Press on. Verse 7 says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the earth, from the face of the land, man and animals, creeping things, and birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. So you see him carrying forward this, this lament, carrying forward this regret over man. But then he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to judge the earth. I'm going to bring my judgment upon the earth. And he's going to bring his judgment upon the earth because God had promised that he would bring his judgment upon the earth. 
See, if you've been keeping up with the storyline of the Bible up until this point, then you can know that verse 7 is coming when you read verse 5. If you've been keeping up with the storyline of the Bible, then you know that verse 7 has got to come if verse 5 is the truth. And verse 5 being the truth, the judgment has to come. See, the way most of the people that we live around now, the most of the people in our community, here's what they believe. They believe that Jesus came so that God would overlook sin. They believe that Jesus came so that God would overlook sin. You know why people believe in Jesus but then aren't in his church? Because they believe that their life is irrelevant. God's just going to overlook sin. Do you want to know why people can go on living in wickedness, living in sinfulness, even if they know that there is a God and even though that they know that Jesus has come? And it's because they believe that Jesus came so that their life is irrelevant and they can do whatever they want to do and however they want to do it and God is just going to overlook it. But brothers and sisters, that is an integrity issue for God. Because God said that if you sin, you will surely die. If you sin, I will judge you. If you sin, I will break fellowship from you. If you sin, if you walk in sin, you have no hope in me. See, Jesus did not come. Jesus did not come so that God would overlook sin. No, Jesus came because God could not overlook sin. Jesus came because God must judge the earth. Jesus came because our sin must rightly, is rightly owed the wrath of God himself. And so Jesus came as the perfect substitute that he might take our place. No, God will not overlook your sin, but he will save you from it. God will not overlook your sin, but he will save you from it. So brothers and sisters, whatever part of life you're in, whatever it is that you're struggling with, would you bring it to him? Would you come to him? Because God is not impotent and God is not a liar. God will do what he says that he will do and God has told us that he will judge the sin of the world. The interesting thing about the text is that it says that Noah finds favor with God. And Noah, having found favor with God, will be spared by God. And the question that comes into my mind, is God just? Is God just? See, I think the enlightened man, the American man, reads this text and he asks, well, yeah, is God just? How could God kill so many people? But I don't think that's what brings the justice of God into question. What brings the justice of God into question is how could God save Noah? Noah was not without sin. Noah was not without wicked thoughts. In fact, later on you'll read stories of Noah doing remarkably wicked things. So the question comes, why is it that Noah found favor with God? Certainly Noah stood out apparently as a righteous man. Noah stood out among the people, though not a perfect man, as being one who had some type of affection, some type of love for God himself. But Noah would be delivered not because of his own righteousness. Noah would be saved not because of his own merit, but because God would show him grace. Because God would show him grace. Because one day a baby would be born, Emmanuel, God with us. And that baby would live a righteous life, a perfect life. And that baby would die as Noah's substitute. And so looking ahead to the future provision, looking ahead to the painful history of providence, 
He sees the beauty of the cross. He sees the power of the resurrection. And he saves a remnant. He shows grace to Noah. You see, the amazing thing about Genesis chapter 6 is all of us know a judgment is coming, right? All of us know the judgment is coming. All of us know that the flood is going to sweep across the earth. And we would like to believe that if we were in Noah's day and we were in Noah's shoes, that we would do what Noah did. That we would go and we would build a boat that we would go and we would build the ark, no matter what anybody else thought, no matter how crazy it seemed, we would go and we would build the ark and we would board it with all the animals and be saved. But you know what the Bible teaches us? That Jesus having come is coming yet again. And that another judgment is coming. That another judgment day will come upon the earth. And this time, he will not be coming as a babe to a virgin. He will be coming as a victor on a white horse. And the trumpet will sound. And the, the dead in Christ will rise. And those who are not with Christ will be judged. So I ask you, if you think that you'd build the boat in Noah's day, are you following Christ in our day? Are you following Christ in our day? Because just as certain as the judgment of the flood is the judgment of the risen Christ who will come back for his people. Brothers and sisters, we have hope. We have hope. In the midst of the darkness, in the bitterness of this life, in the bitterness of despair, we have the sweetness of Christ. We have the light of of Jesus, we have hope. Let's pray together.